0: Welcome to Bicycle Retail Radio, the bicycle industry podcast that brings retailers, vendors, advocates, and thought leaders to the mic for honest discussions about the latest issues facing retailers while taking an in depth look at the person within the profession.
1: Hello, listeners. Heather Mason, MBDA president here. Excited to welcome Brennan Marquez as our guest today on Bicycle Retail Radio. Brennan has been in the industry for multiple years. Part of the retailer education department of specialized bicycle components. Uh, He is working with the NBDA to train retailers through our continuing education classes. He's a friendly face, uh, super smart, very dialed, has an extremely unique way of looking at things. In this conversation, we dive into the services that we offer as retailers to our customers, the customer experience. We talk about sales training. He shares some of his best tips. Yeah, the conversation kind of goes all over meanders, but it's a great one, really relevant to what's happening right now. And I hope you enjoy it. All right, Brennan, I'm pumped to have you on the podcast. How are you today?
2: I'm very well. I also am pumped to be on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Heather.
1: It has been a blast. It's been, wow, I don't know, maybe six months, maybe a little bit more since we've been working together, right? It's been a little bit now.
2: We started working on some projects in the continuing education space for the MBDA back, I guess, in March with a little bit of prep work prior to that. So it's been very exciting to be engaged with you. Thanks.
1: Yeah. You've been in the bicycle industry for a long time. I, I don't even know if you're going to allow me or want me to say the number of years, but it's awesome how our network brings us together. And I'm thankful that we became friends and
2: we're working together now. Same. I have been appreciating it. I've been been doing bikes in one way or another for 29 years or you know, coming up on that that 30th year. And the joke I always make is that All of my gray hair has shown up while I've been in the bike industry. But of course, that's really just time, not because it's the bike industry, although it may be taken however you choose, you know.
1: All right. So listeners, Brennan has been working with the MBDA for the past, let's say, since March, helping us with our continuing education classes. His classes have been really highly acclaimed and we've had some fabulous reviews from the retailers taking them. And Brennan's even doing some one-on-one consultancy now with retailers. So, a lot to get into in this conversation. Before we move forward, I guess, Brennan, you got to share some background, if you would, about yourself and your journey in the industry.
2: Okay, happy to. Like a lot of us that are in the industry, I started out by just loving bikes and wanting to be engaged in whatever way I possibly could. We've all probably been through that phase in our uh, rider journey where we're trying to make everything in our lives, including our partners, sometimes to the detriment of relationships and all this, you know, bike centric. And of course, that extends to work and things like that. And so I remember being in the midst of a month long, like mountain bike trip with some friends of mine. And I said, okay, when we get back from this trip, I'm getting a job in a shop and and going to see what happens, you know? Uh, and at the same time, Many of us that get into retail end of things, takes a while to commit to that as a career path uh, for some reasons that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit today. You know, There's a lot of challenging things to a career path in the bike industry. So I did that. I managed to get a job in a shop and have basically been working retail for the subsequent 15 years or so and really learning while in the industry what it takes to be at the retail end of things And then it was really interesting because I think it was all the way in 2005. So 10 years after that first iteration of really jumping into bike shops, I had the opportunity to go through an educational program from vendors. So specialized was running SBCU, Specialized Bicycle Components University. And I had the opportunity to go through that hands on in person training situation, which was pretty amazing because it was unique at the time in terms of the level of hands-on and the breadth of the hands-on. There were certainly programs with Barnett's that had been operating for years, and there were programs with uh, UBI that had been very specific to technicians in those cases. And what at the time that vendor was doing was really focusing on the retailer and how they try to integrate in with the writer at that point. And it was really exciting. And I took everything out of those courses and applied it to the, the managerial position that I had in a shop at the time. And then a couple of years later, that bike shop was going to be shutting down. The owner had to, was going to move in a different direction. And I kept thinking to myself, well, gosh, what is it that I want to do next in bikes? And holy cow, if I could potentially get into that educational program and be able to help to scale that for retailers, you know, that would be amazing. And I was lucky enough that I knew people that I could get into an interview. And then I became part of SBCU with Specialized in uh, 2008. And what I did there initially is I built their first round of technician-focused courses. At the time, many of you will probably remember AFR suspension products that Specialized was doing, and they... We're doing a very, very good job with the engineering and design, but there were a lot of challenges with quality control. The company was struggling with the ability to build the suspension because they are not a suspension company. And so there was a lot of returns. There was a lot of folks that were looking at and saying, well, we don't understand how to evaluate this. And I was hired to build the first technician-facing courses for actually training technicians on that AFR suspension evaluation and repair and so on and so forth with the goal of hopefully minimizing the number of returns that were, were coming into the mix. So that was my entry into the educational department at SBCU, and then it grew from there. So anything from basic product knowledge to working with retailers on, in the long run, business consultancy. Because one of the things that we learned, of course, over the years, anytime you're engaged with an education program, It's wonderful. People get super excited and they take that energy back to their store and then they have inertia of their own that has to butt up against the inertia that's in the store because the store is running full tilt the whole time and that's hard. So oftentimes we'd see somebody come back to a store fired up with all this energy and they'd get tamped down pretty quickly because they simply didn't have the time or resources or ability to make the change that they now felt they wanted to to do. They couldn't apply all of the knowledge that they'd potentially gotten out of their education. And so, we started looking at it and saying, okay, great. So, the next step for us, rather than just providing the education, is actually providing help with implementation. And that became the consultancy end of things that we started to do through there. And I was very lucky to work with some tremendous people that really mentored me tremendously and we learned from each other and were able to grow some pretty cool programs while we were we were all there at specialized and so it's very very clear to me to see what sort of benefit there is in terms of training and employee development and how that can support and grow your business and it does require help with implementation and it does require the ability to scale any energy that you're bringing into a situation. And if it's only an individual, that's tough. So it's very, very positive if you can create a training program that is organization-wide, which is sort of where I've gotten to where I am now, which is I operate a very small consultancy business and obviously have the privilege of working with the NBDA, And we're working hard to scale education because it's a, a resource that is underutilized in the, the bicycle industry as we sit now. So there, there's a little bit of the background. Anything that you'd like me to fill in? or
1: You hit on so many things. I was taking some notes here as you were reviewing your extensive history. I'm a huge fan of SBCU, having been a top specialized retailer and gone through the program. Joshua Paris, I'm sure you got to work with oh. him. Amazing <laughs> human, right? Oh, Yes. So, I mean, I think that the systematic approach to training the SBC, like, you know, the different steps involved in how you did educate the retailer were truly impactful on my business. I see the thoughts and the processes that you are bringing forward to our students in the continuing education. And like I sat in on your class last night, which was the selling the services, and I took several notes And I find myself, even if you think you have good processes in place, when you sit through some of these educational moments, it just allows you to come away with new thoughts and concepts and ways of looking. So I love your path. I love that you have gone through SBCU and that you're now helping retailers through the MBDA and one-on-one. What you're saying there, though... You do. You can go to a class or go to a brand event, like a brand launch, and you get so excited because you're out of your store and you have all this energy and, and you're just like pumped. And then you get back to the store and it's like, how can I implement? We got to get some tips there, and we got to help these retailers implement the things that we're teaching them, right?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So short term, and we had questions yesterday in class about great. How do I do this mm-hmm. this thing? Which is, is very interesting. So, I mean, short-term, one of the things that we could do in, in education and really should be a takeaway from, from any education is to spend some of the time in continuing education, charting out activity plans with folks when they get back to their stores. And that can be very valuable in terms of helping them with implementation. Also, there's a number of things that we, and when I say we, I'm thinking, you know, industry as, as a whole, there's a number of things that we see as low-hanging fruit success stories depending on where a story is. I know that you've talked to folks about things like service menu evaluation and fine-tuning and things. There's a number of different tools that are out there that can start to shift inertia. And so, understanding what those are and how you could apply them to your business depending on where it's sitting right now is a great way to implement change in a way that actually won't cost you much in time or energy, but will pay dividends, not just in terms of profitability and revenue and all of these elements, but also in demonstrating to your crew, hey, we can make a change and actually see an effect pretty quickly. So those are also really, really valuable tools. And frankly, some of the stuff that we have focused on in the continuing education series that we're working on here are a lot of those pieces of low-hanging fruit.
1: Yeah, so there's so many different topics right now that I think are so important. And you know, I have you for an hour on our podcast, so I want to make sure I get our listeners, you know, some good tips and advice from you, and also provide them just some of the insight that that if they did call you up or want to work with you, that you could touch on. So I hope you don't mind. I have just like several questions prepared to fire off at you in varying topics, just to get your opinion and resource, if that's okay for you.
2: My pleasure. Go for it.
1: Awesome. I wanted to start top level, a conversation that we're hearing a lot right now is around staff training and continuing education just for our staff, employee training specifically. So we have many small bicycle retailers who are doing this in different ways. Some people do the group huddle, some don't, some have a very organized training system, some don't. So let's go top level in your experience. Benefits of investing in setting up an employee training program for our employees. What are your thoughts about that?
2: There's a couple big big hit items that I would I would say. So the first thing is it's your best opportunity to continue to grow, develop, refine your brand culture by having continuous training because you can always refine what it is that your staff understands. The brand to be, your own personal brand to be. So that ongoing expectation is really, really key. The other thing is, is that you can chart out a development path for somebody so that even as early as an interview process with a potential staff member, you can say, here's where you start and here's where you can go. And here are the steps that are there in between. And what that does for understanding of what their experience and their expectation will be working with you is huge. One of the other challenges that we have in the bicycle industry is staff retention. And if we can set an expectation and of course meet it, even to a certain extent, that's going to improve that retention so that we are actually able to keep people in the business longer, which means we have people that are more experienced, more trained in the long run that are in the mix. And the final thing that I I like to throw out there because over the years, of course, you hear the response from retailers, well, I'm not sure that I want to invest that training in this person because what happens if they go away in six months? And it's a very, very valid question. There are a couple ways that I would think about it. First of all, chances are good that person's going to stay in your immediate community. They might go somewhere else in the cycling community, in your immediate community. Great. That means that you've actually developed your community and the support for your riders and that is a positive as well, although it doesn't necessarily feel like it hits your own business as much as you might like. But even more important, the thing that I really like to consider is, great, would you rather train somebody and have them go away or would you rather not train them and have them stay? Because there are a lot of challenges there too if you're not engaging with that that staff member, if you're not giving them something to to move forward with, or if you're not helping them to improve the way that they are interacting with your riders and they stay there are some problems there too.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking about all the different things that we can think about when it comes to staff training. It could be as simple as what you do in your store like the morning huddle or product knowledge or training on your culture. And then I'm also thinking about the programs that the MBDA offers and you know we have employees that come to the continuing education classes. Like it's not always the owner manager. It could be the service manager or a technician or a sales member, staff member. So I think there's different parts within training that we could at least do something. Like what is an easy thing that we could do? Like a low-hanging fruit, if you would, Brennan, for making sure our staff is engaged in some sort of training <laughs> policy in place.
2: One of the best things that we can do as an industry at the store and retail level is actually provide a given amount of time per week or per season for staff members where they're on the clock and it is dedicated actively to training. Certainly when I was coming up in bicycles, there was not that much available in the retailers that I worked within. They were not emphasizing much in terms of training. It was, hey, hop in there, start wrenching, start talking to people. And if you do something wrong, we may or may not correct that. Or if you take a misstep, well, you're going to practice it again in another 10, 15 minutes with the next person. And it was definitely learn as you go and in the heat of the fire, so to speak. And of course, because so much of the industry is driven by passionate people, many of us were searching out information on our own at the same time. And fortunately, that was good for the rider. Unfortunately, that creates potentially a culture within retail of, hey, we don't need to do this. I need the passionate person or I need the unicorn who already understands everything to be stepping into my store. I'm going to hire for that. So one of the most valuable and simplest things that you can do is with a new hire in your store, you would say, okay, I'm going to dedicate and you decide what your store needs and everything. I'm going to dedicate X percentage of their time during the first 90 days of their new hire situation. And this percentage of time, they're dedicated to training. And here are the things that it's going to be during that time, whether it's great continuing education classes with the NPDA, if there's something that's pertinent and appropriate, whether it's great, we're going to sign you up for Shimano S Tech or Stu Online, those sorts of technical things. If you're a technician and you're moving forward in that direction, or you're going to go and connect with the DEA and those sorts of things and work through these other tools. And you have an idea that way about what the time commitments might be on those things. And you can start to create that culture for that person of their own continuing education by letting them know that you're supporting it, but you need to schedule for it.
1: Yeah, I fully agree with that. I love setting time aside and that allows the employee to know that also that you're dedicated to them and their success. A couple of specific questions. We talk often about role playing. How important Mm -hmm. do you feel like role playing is?
2: Oh, gosh. Everybody hates it, right? I kind of like it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. You probably have uh, some good improvisational experience in the past. Then role playing is, I think, incredibly important. And it's incredibly important because it can build confidence for somebody. Folks that are struggling with being thrown into the fire. And of course, they feel like every interaction is imminently important, especially if they're excited about bikes. They want to talk to people about bikes. They're now on the sales floor. They're in a bike shop, which is you know the inner sanctum of where people that are enthusiastic about bikes want to be. Well, now they suddenly are putting tons of pressure on themselves to do the right thing. And if they haven't practiced doing the right thing, they might be at sea. So role-playing is very, very important. The ways that you overcome those those concerns, because people will be nervous about it for all the reasons we just mentioned, it feels like a lot of pressure, is you really truly try and take them out of a pressure situation and make it as low as possible for them to experiment with it. And when they get nervous, when they mess up and everything, great, have them embrace that and support them in... Yeah, this is exactly the spot to do it. And we're doing this so that you have greater ability to do it with the rider in the moment. So I think it's actually really important. I mentioned the improv thing. Years ago, some folks asked me to audition for an improv group and it terrified me. The idea of it absolutely terrified me. And I thought about that for a day or two. And I thought, well, if it terrifies me, I should probably do it. So if you can find a way to key into those things that are really, really scary for your staff. And figure out how to support them in it, get them to that mindset where they're like, okay, well, if I'm terrified by this, I better see why I'm terrified about it and what there is to actually be scared of. And then you can move forward from there.
1: Yeah. Usually the things that scare me are the things that actually, once I do them, you know, prove the most valuable. We in our P2 groups, when we have our in-person meetings, we have the retailers, which are the store owners, you know, successful Mm -hmm. businessmen and women role play. And it's a great exercise that we get a lot of laughter, but, you know, we'll give some retailers the role of being the customer who only wants to buy online and the team member has to be able to sell them something in store. And, you know, there's definitely ways that we can work through situations that allow us to keep the sale in store or allow us to add on or exceed the rider's expectations. So we're always looking to role play to do that. So that's why I was curious about your thoughts on it. So thanks for that. You said the scary stuff. And one more question on employee training then before we move on to another topic, the importance of giving your employees goals or being very clear with your employees what your goals are. Is that important? And do you you advise retailers to do that?
2: I think it's essential. Goals are one of the early ways that you can create transparency in your business as to why you're asking somebody to do something. And that's a really, really important thing. It's very easy to step into the mix and, and as an owner or manager say, hey, new hire, you're going to do this. And if you can follow it up with a here's why, it speeds up the process for that person becoming engaged in the business, but also feeling like they're not being asked to do something outside of their job description potentially. Especially because we know that in the bike industry, our job descriptions are so broad, it can be hard to hone in on, on what they are. So if you give somebody a goal, and you say, I'm asking you to do this and here's why, and here's how we're going to measure your success. And here are the tools that we're going to apply together to help you get there in terms of your success. That takes a lot of the the fear and the ambiguity and the feeling of out there in the deep end of the pool with a half inflated water wing away. They at least feel like there are support available to them in that situation.
1: I think goal setting and and being very clear, and I even have some retailers who will post like a scoreboard almost of, of their entire team and their employee break area, being very transparent. And it just allows people to get fired up almost and and strive to achieve, you know? So I know there's different ways for everyone to do it. And I'm, I'm, I'm not advocating for one, but I know that there's different ways. And I think having some way in place is
2: good. Yeah, absolutely. The one caveat I would always throw out there is when you are sharing goals with your staff like that, make sure that it is explicitly clear that there's no punitive end to doing the goals and having them out there and having them out there shared across the business. But instead, actually, it's focused on, great, how do we continue to improve as a group or as a business? And we're going to support you in that rather than, oh, if you're not making your goal, this is what happens to you and there's a punishment involved. It's really important that you set that tone as well in all the transparency around the business
0: have you signed up for ride It daily extended service yet what are you waiting for it's the extended service plan for your customers that pays you your shop rate for extended service and warranty claims rides is only available to nbda members and it's only available at nbda.com
1: Well, let me shift a little bit. There's two other topics I want to make sure I have time to get Mm -hmm. into with you. I guess the first one is around the customer experience. When you and I started this relationship, I said, I'd love to have you lead some continuing education classes for the MBDA. I just kind of asked you to throw out some class topics that you'd be interested in talking to. And I wondered why you selected those and maybe it's the changing environment right now. Maybe it's the state of the industry, but that customer experience that like going above and beyond that wow experience seemed to be something that you feel is important. Can you speak to that a little bit?
2: Absolutely. When we look at the way that the industry is trending and realistically, it's not unique to the bicycle industry, but if we think about the fulfillment end of things, where people get the products that they're using to have the experiences that they want to have out there in the world whether it's in their kitchen or whether it's on bikes or or whatever it's easier and easier and easier for people to engage only with a product and then go and have their own experience and so what I see happening in the industry is that the opportunity for retailers really lies post purchase. Mm. Because so much of the fulfillment now is coming potentially directly from vendors, and I don't expect to see that change. And there's all these different ways that that's starting to be affected. Our goal should be, if we can get there, to shift our business model and the way that we work with our riders so that more of our emphasis is on curating and fostering their experience with the bike post-sale. So, I really like to think about that from the customer experience standpoint and for years done a lot of work with tools that we call hassle maps or that are a hassle map tool. And I'm not sure if you've been through one of those, but effectively what you do is you you sort of look at a rider and you say, okay, they just bought a bike. What are all of the hassles that are going to affect this rider and stop them from riding their bike, becoming a cyclist? getting so into this down the road and all of these sorts of things that they are absolutely a cyclist and will identify as that for the rest of their lives and have the experiences they want to have on the bike. And if you chart out all the hassles for somebody there and as a business start to look at it and say, great, I'm not going to be able to address all of these, but there's some of these that I could help my ridership with. That's a really good tool to start to look at and say, okay, what else can I do for my riders aside from provide them with the product to have the experience? How else can I foster their experience? How can I remove their hassles and help them grow into part of the community and become a cyclist in this neighborhood or the nation and globe as a whole? And by digging into that, we really show ourselves potentially a way forward that is different than traditional retail, because suddenly we're starting to share our experiences with riders in different ways than we have traditionally. But that's why most of us got into the bike shops in the first place is because we wanted to continue to live vicariously through this full immersion in cycling experience. And only a small part of that experience actually happens in the shop. Most of it is out there in the community.
1: The listeners cannot see my face right now, but you can. And I'm like blown up with like ideas all over. You can see this right by the wide eyes and like the grin because what you're saying. So last night in the continuing education class, you led and listeners listen to this concept. Think about this. Hopefully, Brennan, it's okay for me to share. You don't even know what I'm (laughs) going to share. So (laughs) yes, you said, imagine we sell a hundred bikes this year. We would expect then, or we would hope, that those 100 bikes come back next year for annual tunes. So for our listeners, you sell 100 bikes last year, they should all come back from annual tunes next year, right? So we look at the data, and we might see only 40 bikes came back in. Well, where are those 60 bikes? And maybe our goal, one of our goals should be to get those 100 bikes back in for service. And if we start looking at it that way, that's a unique way to look at it. I don't know, Brennan, that's just where my brain just went, but
2: I love it. I love it. That's one of my favorite examples of post-sale engagement, right? And it's very easy to do with that concept of the annual tune. Everybody gets it when you start talking about it that way, because, and maybe you're going to go here too, after two years, if you still only sell a hundred bikes each year, but after two years of business, now you should be getting 200 annual tunes each year. So you should see a large increase of the service work that's happening. If you are a hundred percent engaged with your riders, or at least you should be seeing 80 bikes that next year, if you're only getting 40, but either way, it should be building the business and it's core to your business. It's core to the community.
1: Yeah. I hope our listeners are going to go check out their numbers. And it's almost scary because if we're not interacting with that many riders, right. Right. I mean, well, it's scary, but it's also opportunity, right? And we have to take opportunity.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: Another thing I wanted to ask you about while we're here, and I know I'm kind mm-hmm. of zigging all over, but it does go with the customer experience. I was reading an article in some retailer magazine that oftentimes what we do is a customer comes in because they have a need. Maybe it's a tube and they come in and you know, we greet them and we say, thank you for coming to the shop. The customer says, I'm looking for two, but we get the tube. customer leaves that is selling for like the problem that is not selling, like not creating an opportunity for sale. Like an opportunity would be like, Oh, what kind of bike do you have? Oh, where are you riding? Right. Do you understand what I'm saying? Can you speak a little bit instead of just. Our sales team solving for what the customer needs, but instead seeing every customer as an opportunity, right? There's something to that, right, Brennan? Or am I off the... Oh, no,
2: you're absolutely nailing it there. I like to think of them as, hey, this is a community member, right? And at the very least, you want to find out where they engage within the community. If they're not engaging in the community already, great. You get to be the welcome into the community, So the opportunity there is to meet that person, get to know a little bit more about them and figure out how you can not just satisfy their need, but bring them into the larger group. And some people never want to be engaged and brought into that and that's fine. But if you're not taking care of that rider in that other way, the chance of getting to work with them after that need is met is minimized. Right? So that really is the opportunity that you're speaking about is, how do I get this person into the community? It's not just, how do I sell them more stuff? That's a result of actually getting the person engaged in the community. And that can be really helpful for salespeople that are concerned about feeling like they're salespeople. You're really welcoming people into the community, and that's the job of the shop.
1: All right. Let me flip now because another one of the continuing education selling services And we had Bob Marjavikas in, did a supply Mm -hmm. update recently and talked about the importance of services as margins are declining. Retailers are finding profitability being harder with just selling items. Selling services seems to be an opportunity. What are your thoughts on that?
2: I think it's essential. Again, those are the things that are going to be happening post-sale, the services. And Bob's absolutely right. I love Bob. He and I happen to actually share a birthday, although it's many decades apart. So it always makes me laugh because, yeah, his birthday pops up on Facebook on my birthday. And anyway, neither here nor there, but he's absolutely right. One of the best things that we can do as retailers for our bottom line is to focus on the things that are going to bring us a greater margin greater profit in the mix and those are always going to be the services because they're the things that we own more than the products we buy from the vendors to then resell we are losing a lot of dollars in that transaction so jokingly semi-jokingly i say what we have to do is sell less bikes and the reality is is we don't want to sell less bikes we don't want to stop doing what we're good at but we really want to sell more services And so it looks like that we're selling fewer bikes relative to the services, but that's absolutely true. And that is where it can be very helpful to broaden the perspective of what a service is and get creative and think about, okay, what other things can I do for my ridership? Is it providing insurance when they're shipping a bike? Is there something I could do with some sort of theft insurance or something? Is there a way that I can help them recycle their bikes or other elements of the, the things. And we all get to be a greener community, whatever it might be. How do I engage with the local advocacy group to give my riders more places to operate or ride their bikes? And then, of course, you want to also figure out how to monetize that stuff because that is essential to the shift. Traditionally, there has been a big push to provide services at little or no cost to support the sale the sale is still the result of the services, but the services themselves have enough value that we can charge for them.
1: Yeah, every time I see that free one free tune or free tune with a purchase of a bike, I'm like, oh my God, please stop, please.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But even, you know, that brings me to, and I don't want to get too specific on because we're in a short podcast here, but just pricing of services. I feel like so often retailers have just, chosen a price because they've done a quick Google search, and they want to be competitive in the local market. And why I feel like that's important. I think it's also important to know how much a service costs you, and then have a percentage in mind that you need would like to make a margin on that service and being really dialed and specific. So you're not losing money on your services without going too in depth. Any thoughts on that, Brennan?
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it brings us right back around to goals. So at some point, you build goals for your business and those can be applicable to anything, really. You can refine it and say, okay, great. I want to make this much or this percentage of my revenue I want coming from services that I sell. I have this many people, this many hours to work with. What do I need to make per hour? And you can figure out exactly what you need to charge. Of course, you also are going to want to look at the competition around you, but you're absolutely right. Too often, that's the default. Somebody looks at it and says, what's the competition doing? And while it's great to understand what they're doing and to look at averages even across the industry, it's important to do the goal setting based on what you want for your business and what you think your business can actually achieve. And the worst thing that happens If you plug numbers in there that you've gone through and and developed and thought, this is going to be great. This is the right thing for my business. And for some reason, people are not willing to pay that. Well, then maybe you misstepped it. But the worst thing that happens there is you reduce your pricing until you get demand. And you've tested at that point what the market will actually bear. One of the things that's really been fascinating in, in my career is oftentimes we've been engaging with retailers where they were hesitant to raise pricing, particularly in the service department, because they thought that the market would not accept it. And I cannot think of a case where working with a retailer, we raised prices and they had to go back down. Right. And that's been really extraordinary to see. And certainly over the last few years, people understand that things cost more and that really should be extended to, you know, people are a resource as well, for all of us. And while we understand that all of these products cost more, part of the reason they cost more is because the people that are supporting them, the folks that are in the shop, helping the riders to achieve what they want to achieve also cost more. And we need to be able to take care of those folks to continue to have careers in the retail and of the bike industry.
1: Yeah. There's so much going on. Such an interesting time in our industry right now, the discounting inventory. I know you're working with a lot of retailers What are retailers at? Like, is there any trends you're noticing or anything that, you know, are common threads where you're noticing that people are asking for help more in certain areas?
2: Well, it's interesting. In a lot of ways, it brings us back to some of the stuff we started speaking about here. One of the biggest trends and one of the things that people are asking for help the most with is finding staff and, particularly, finding specialized staff in terms of folks that have unique abilities, technicians, fitters, coaches, all of these categories where people are developed and would be able to step in and really help grow an element of the business. And the joke I always make, which feels like it becomes less funny every time, probably to me, it becomes less funny because it's not funny to begin with, but we're all looking for unicorns to be able to hire and step into our stores and have them perform at a really high level. And the reality is is unicorns don't exist. Mm. So what we really have to do is we have to hire the horses and then build the unicorns out of them, you know, help them grow their horns through training, through helping them with specialized development so that then they can grow that stuff. But that also gives us a stronger workforce at retail If we actually have the structures in place to grow those unicorns out of the horses, because there are a bunch of horses out there. We just need to give them the extra infusion of keratin or whatever to grow the horn out of the, I've definitely
1: got the visualization going right now. Thank you for that. (laughs) But yeah, I think it's also then starting by hiring people who are open to learning new things. I think that's a question we have to ask in that initial process then.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that I think is really fascinating is that we, of course, we look for people that are passionate about bikes when we're hiring. And that is an easy win if we find somebody who is super excited about bikes. And I think that there are a lot of opportunities with people that are super excited about people. Mm. If you hire folks that are good at engaging with other people, then you can teach them the relatively easy stuff, which is the product knowledge which oftentimes is the technical skills, those things are actually easier to come by than having that person that is enthusiastic, a good communicator, excited about engaging with people, and is creative about engaging with people. Those things are much harder to train. And yes, people get better at it and whatnot, but it can be challenging to teach somebody who doesn't have a proclivity there already.
1: Yeah. Just the ability to look someone in the eye when you're having a conversation with them is I think an important trait that sometimes we just want to hire a warm body, but we do want to hire the right warm body.
2: Yeah. It's very important.
1: So I want to ask you who your mentors are. Like, where are you going for continuing education?
2: Oh my gosh. That is a really good question. Well, again, I have been very, very lucky to I would say come up in the bicycle industry in some interesting things that I think of as generations. I spent a good part of the 90s in Los Angeles working for Supergo Bike Shops, which is a name some people remember from the past, but there was an interesting generation of people that came out of there. Some of them went on and started the SBCU program specialized, and that was how I knew people deeper in there to get into that. You know, Some of them started Niner Bikes and are now doing things like viral bicycles and things like that. And then, of course, there's folks like, I mean, Alan Goldsmith is an interesting fellow to have been raised in the bicycle industry by. And so there are some things along that line. But then I look, really, the folks that I'm excited about engaging with on a mentorship level are some of the folks that in this last generation of my bicycle life, I've had the opportunity to engage with coming through SBCU with folks like Donnie Perry, if you know Donnie, Scott Holtz, who still runs the runs. Oh gosh, Scott is uh, amazing. I was just telling somebody else a story of Scott mentoring me actually on a road bike in very valuable ways and, and things. George Lee, who I consider a good friend and somebody I have so much admiration and respect for the way that he thinks And I was very lucky to work with those folks and now have these connections so that I can bounce things off of them if I have queries. And frankly, I have to thank George in particular because I think he put us in contact initially and that has been a wonderful connection to have. So some of those folks are the folks that I I tend to default to. There's one other person that I would shout out who is in my circle that I, I rely on a lot and that's Jennifer Gibbons who until just recently, she ran the retail services division of specialized at there. So she really was focused on, all right, here's the group that's going to help retailers redesign their stores. And I was part of that for a few years with her as one of my managers. She's a tremendous, tremendous mind in terms of thinking about the way that retail operates and the customer experience specifically.
1: I love all the names you just mentioned and <laughs> we're recording and I'm on my MacBook and as we're you just mentioned George he just emailed me to say hi and <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so he's a great guy. I don't know, I hate asking a best question, but I guess my last question would be a <laughs> best question. What is like the best business advice that you've ever been given that maybe would be applicable to retailers as well, listening?
2: Okay, well, it's that <laughs> I got you. I put you in the it's, hot seat. <laughs> it, no, no, not at all. It's I just got excited about it because we're talking about George and everything. Something he told me once that was invaluable to my thinking and particularly around implementation. If you are in a managerial level, George said to me one time, he said, you know, if you set your expectation that the staff that you're working with and you're managing is going to be able to achieve maybe 60% of what you want or hope that they will be able to achieve you're going to be a lot happier and a lot more stable in terms of the way you're managing your crew and i thought that was such an important consideration because so many of us get to a position where we've got these folks underneath us and our our goal is to help them and foster them along and one of the really really important elements of fostering somebody and truly allowing them to develop is also allowing them to fail. Mm -hmm. And if you pick up what somebody is not able to take all the way across the finish line and finish it, it doesn't necessarily allow them to fail. And so allowing some space for them to not achieve everything you hope is a really, really good tool for helping them learn for the future.
1: I love that. I love that. It's like making my training plan, but putting it like in pencil. Like So it's like 60%. I like it. So you can, yeah, I'm with you. I'm picking up what you're throwing down. What's coming up. So we've got more continuing education classes on the MBDA. I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. If people wanted to contact you to set up a one-on-one, how do they do that? What's the next steps there?
2: Yeah. The best way is to reach out to me directly. I do not yet have a a website for the consultancy agency, but the best way to run it, and it's special, is the name of the PLLC. And the best way to reach out to me is either through LinkedIn or directly. You can reach out to me, brennan.marquez, that's B-R-E-N-N-A-N dot Marquez, M-A-R-Q-U-E-Z at gmail.com. That's the forever email, you know, that's the easy one to ensure will always be there. And I'm I'm very happy and excited to discuss anything with retailers and, and get an idea about, great, how can we help your business? How can we improve what it is you're doing? How can we help you engage? How can we help you set up a change plan? Because that's really what we're talking about is if you're going to try and do anything, you need to affect some sort of change. And oh my gosh, change is so difficult.
1: Yeah, that is something, you know, we have our P2 groups, which are very valuable and impactful, and it's the retailers who can take what they learn in those and then actually say, okay, here is my step-by-step, like even timeline of how I'm going to make this, implement this change. How am I going to get my employees behind this change? How am I going to get the infrastructure in the shop? So it's one thing to learn it's another thing to implement. And I think having someone one-on-one to help with that is really, really helpful. We do that. We match up our P2 members with accountability buddies, and that really helps. So that's a great way to do it. Yeah. I love this. I will link to your LinkedIn in the show notes and we'll make sure that people can find a way to get in touch with you. Love the work you're doing on the continuing education. Excited to hopefully have you join us at our summit event next year and just continue the partnership. So Brennan, you're awesome. And Yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast.
2: Again, absolutely my pleasure. So good to get this FaceTime with you. (laughs) I realize that's not fun,
1: right? (laughs) Just chat it out. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, All right, Brennan. Well, lots of great things to come. And thanks for all your insight and all you've done for retailers.
2: Thank you so much, Heather.
0: Thank you for listening to Bicycle Retail Radio. This podcast is designed specifically for the bicycle industry dedicated to strengthening our retailers and cycling community. If it is your first episode, we urge you to take the time and listen to our past episodes. Support the show by first subscribing, then share your favorite episode online with friends. You can go one step further and leave a review. It helps members of our industry find our podcast. Special thanks to NBDA Development Director Rochelle Scouten for editing and promotional graphics. Music provided by Joel Picard.